Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about Buddhist practice. So we spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation. It's an opportunity to post your questions. And a opportunity to cultivate mindfulness as a prerequisite for seeing clearly. So this uh, session acts as sort of a intermediary between study and practice. We have in the morning on Saturday is a study group where we focus more on study. If you have questions about Buddhist theory, you can join our study group and ask there. And then on the other end, we have our at-home course, which you can sign up for and ask questions directly about your practice. And more importantly, learn from your own experience through the practice. But this is sort of as a means of applying the theory practically this session. So if you have questions about applying the Buddhist theory practically, questions that are important to you, that the answers will actually affect your practice, then please ask them. This is the time. Once you've asked your question, yeah, you can just sit back and listen. And for the first 15 minutes, take this opportunity to be mindful together. I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering.
Okay, that's 15 minutes. We're back. So from here on, we'd ask that the chat be reserved for questions only. And so you can still answer or ask questions at any time in the chat. Once you've asked your question, just sit back, chill, and stay mindful. You have questions? Sometimes in sitting meditation, I see stress around sati, remembering. Watching, I can see it is linked to anxiety about my future practice, as dementia is in my family, and I wonder if meditation is something that will fall away as I age, simply because the mind is compromised in remembering. I note all of this as thinking and stress and future, and the stress ebbs. Do you have any recommendation around practicing with this? Have you observed that years of meditation practice helps a meditator if their mind becomes compromised due to disease or injury? Well, what would it matter if if it was if it uh, if it was true that they became compromised? See, because an answer to this isn't really getting at the problem, and the problem is the susceptibility, the vulnerability to change, the vulnerability to circumstances, which is the crux of the uh, importance of mindfulness. Mindfulness is meant to make you invulnerable, and how it does that is by removing any vulnerability. So regardless of your experience, you are free from any kind of reactivity, that there's a absence of judgment and partiality and extrapolation. So it's certainly possible that you can get into a state where cognitive capacity is diminished. Now, what exactly that means, I'm, I'm not quite clear, but um, the training in mindfulness uh, needs to be prior to that. And so it's the, the mindfulness isn't going to protect your brain from various types of decay or aging or, or, or change. Certainly mindfulness isn't going to make things okay if you have a lobotomy, for example. So it's certainly possible that, that things can happen that impair your, your cognitive capacity. Uh, mindfulness isn't about changing your experience. It's about changing your perspective. And so a person who is trained in mindfulness prior to that happening will not be upset. If you've seen people who've had strokes or are suffering from dementia, they can become very angry, frustrated, uh, depressed, scared, paranoid, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's not because of the dementia, it's just because of their incapacity to deal with it or to deal with difficult situations in general. So at this point where you haven't uh, reached that state, it behooves you to, of course, do what you're doing, but maybe be more, a little more um, uh, have a little bit more conviction about it and be, be contented on the fact that uh, 
there's power to what you're doing now that may not stop you from experiencing certain things that you right now don't want to experience, but will help you to help free you from that aversion to those experiences, make you more flexible, more able to deal with change. You need that confidence because though you're doing it, if you have doubts and worries, they're going to weaken your mind and you have to note those away. So the, the important understanding is to be able to separate experiences from perspectives or reactions. And mindfulness removes the reactions. doesn't necessarily free you from unpleasant experiences. Is it true that suicide is not breaking the first precept? Well, the problem with suicide is that you're dead, so it's inconsequential as to whether you've broken the precepts. The only time you need to know whether you've broken a precept is if you know you, whether you have to commit to taking them again, and you're already dead, so uh, you don't have that concern anymore. Precepts aren't the same as, aren't real. Precepts are conceptual. They're not reality. Reality is what's going on in your mind. And a person who commits suicide has, of course, negative mind states. So that's what's going to be impactful. Uh, ordinarily, a person who commits suicide is reborn in the very bad place. I see all the craving that I'm caught up in, but I'm not able to take that first step into mindfulness. I never got to finish the at-home course, and I've been like this for months. Any advice? Well, take that first step into mindfulness. It is, in fact, even easier than you coming here and typing this question in. Taking that first step is considerably considerably easier than what you've just done, so maybe reevaluate your understanding of mindfulness and uh, take that first step again and again and again there's only one step there's not even there's not a first step and a second step there really is only one step uh it's all you have to do um yeah i mean even just having to see all the craving if you've taken the time to see it why weren't you taking the time to be mindful it's a very simple thing to do maybe overthinking it and you may have created this idea of what mindfulness that is a lot bigger than what it actually is. But uh, instead of typing this question, you could have been mindful many times in the time it took you to even write the question, let alone uh, hear the answer. No, not that I'm not that it's wrong to ask. This is why we ask questions, so so we can learn. But nonetheless, it, you don't have a problem. Problem is you think you got a problem, and you're thinking about that problem that doesn't even exist. I've welcomed impermanence and the initial precepts not to lie, kill, steal, and so into my life and meditate. Despite this, I still seek a partner in life. Would this really be so harmful? I mean, 
you haven't specified what you mean by so what you mean by so would it be so harmful well what do you mean by so usually when in english when we use that phrase we're referring back to some level of something right so i say that will kill you and you say would it really be so harmful as to kill me yeah, that's the idea so no it wouldn't be so harmful as to kill you Um, you might you might ask, would it be so harmful as to prevent me from keeping the precepts? No, it wouldn't. Uh, meditating? No, not really. Would it be a detriment to both those things, a danger to both of those things? Yes. Yes, you can't break the third precept. Very, It's not as easy to break the third precept if you're not in a relationship, right? That's still possible to, well, you have to get into a relationship of some sort anyway. To break the third precept, right? Some sort of relationship, um, and also there are many. You know, you might steal for your your family, or lie for your partner, or that sort of lie to your partner. It certainly complicates things. It's certainly not a support for your practice, except in the case where they are also meditating, and to some limited extent, I think it can be a support. Um, and this, yeah, so as far as your meditation, it would certainly be a distraction from meditation. But harmful? I mean, maybe harmful isn't really the right way of looking at it. It would be a detri to your detriment in terms of those two things you mentioned. But not a showstopper. When I practiced this meditation intensively, once when I was sleeping, I fell into a trance-like state when sleeping. Do you know what could that be? Maybe seeing Nibbana? No, that's not Nibbana. I mean, it's hard to... Uh, it's hard to discern from your words because is Nibbana a trance-like state? Technically, uh, but you wouldn't describe it in that way. The only way you could describe something as trance-like is if you were experiencing it. So no, Nibbana is not really trance-like. Trance -like. Um, not in the way we understand a trance. But it's just a word, and technically it probably could be considered trance-like, but that's only technically. Uh, and also you were sleeping, so Nibbana only really comes about through letting go, which doesn't really happen when you're asleep, right? It requires clarity of mind and strength of mind, and that's kind of lacking while you're sleeping. Could an arahant enter into Nibbana in their sleep? Possibly. Probably, uh, probably not. But yeah, seeing Nibbana is a bit misleading, thinking that it's an object that you can see. It's just a seeing Nibbana. The only reason we use the word seeing Nibbana is because we use the phrase seeing to mean direct. Like if I tell you about, um, let's say, Thailand, or I tell you about India, and the, I tell you about all the places the Buddha lived, um, that's, that's not seeing for yourself. But if you go to India, you see for yourself. So we use this phrase seeing 
as a placeholder to talk about direct realization. So if I tell you about Nibbana, that's not seeing Nibbana. But if you experience it for yourself, we idiomatically refer to that as, or figuratively we refer to that as seeing, not literally seeing, seeing, or not seeing in any ordinary sense of the phrase. It's uh, It's in fact not like experiencing anything else because there's no... Um, there's no arising of consciousness in Nibbana. I guess one other thing I could say just as a final point is it doesn't really matter what happened in the past, anything you experienced. It's not really consequential. It's not important that you know what things are. The only thing that's really important is that you see impermanent suffering and non-self. So you can always sort of phrase your or frame your uh, experiences in that regard, and remind yourself that's all your interest. That's all that's important. Are you seeing impermanent suffering and non-self? Are you seeing things as impermanent suffering and non-self? Which this thing was because it is gone now. So impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. That's all that you need to understand about anything. My brother is depressed and feels like he has accomplished nothing in life. I try my best to guide him towards mindfulness, but given he doesn't see results, he remains unconvinced. Any advice? Yeah, don't try to convince people who are unconvinced unless they want you to convince them. Pulling people towards mindfulness is a sure way to keep them from um, growing as as individuals and keeping you from practicing yourself. The best and only thing you can do is try and be mindful for yourself. It will uh, remove any kind of uh, um, dissatisfaction you have with him and with his state any yearning for change in him or yearning for benefit to him and that sort of thing. These things are, are unwholesome. They're harmful to you. They're probably harmful to him as well. And you, it's, it's an imperative that you free yourself from those. Mindfulness will do that. If you practice mindfulness yourself, you'll I mean, specifically practice mindfulness towards these states. And you might be overlooking them, even though you might be being mindful in other ways. Make sure you're not overlooking these yearning or desire for him to change the disappointment or dissatisfaction in in his like like em- empathy. You feel sad for him or that sort of feel bad for him and that sort of thing. You have to be free from those. Um, and and the miracle of that is when you do, it will change his perspective as well. I mean, suddenly he can't depend on you. Uh, I mean, he can't rely on you to to uh, prop him up and uh, you on the other hand uh, conversely you provide a, an example for him which is all it's just the best thing for people when they have an example a good example to follow to 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 compare themselves to and realize that they are uh, lacking and to really change not for you to try and pull them along or guide them guidance is a bit overrated except for the most practical guidance when people need information 
some of the best guidance you can do is showing them how little you care or how you don't care kind of wakes them up because caring leads to, uh, leads to dependency and yeah feeling like you're doing it for the person who cares There are days where I don't feel like doing what I need to do, such as working, cooking, etc. How can I incorporate mindfulness in tasks outside formal meditation so as to lessen my sufferings? Yeah, well, you, you shouldn't really frame it in terms of lessening your sufferings. Um, the problem isn't the sufferings. You should lessen the uh, reactions, the things which are going to cause you suffering. Don't like a focus on lessening your suffering only encourages aversion and attachment to pleasure and that sort of thing. So try and note the aversion and the desire and the, and, and so on. But how to incorporate mindfulness in tasks? Uh, well, we talk a little bit about that in the booklet in the last chapter. So if you haven't read our booklet, uh, maybe try that. But it's pretty simple. You just apply mindfulness to the postures of the body or movements of the body, noting the movements. You can note like brushing, brushing. When you eat, you can say chewing, chewing, swallowing. But don't think of it as lessening your suffering. Thinking of it as cultivating clarity, lessening your delusion. That's really the crux of it. We have delusion, which means we're we're confused or we're unclear. We have a sort of muddled state of mind, a dark and cloudy state of mind, and mindfulness creates clarity and brilliance. When we note sitting in between the rising and falling and the touching point, where exactly should the mind be sent, lower or upper back? buttocks, or something else. Well, there'll be different experiences, different sensations at different times. Uh, it's kind of overthinking it to ask this question. It's a common question, but it's kind of because we overthink it. Um, it's more of a general sense of sitting, which involves various spots, but also shows you the unpredictability of it, because you won't always have the same sensations in every every time you say sitting. So just be aware that you're sitting and say sitting. Keep it keep it simple in your mind that do I know that I'm sitting? Okay, sitting. Basically the, the posture of the body that you can identify as sitting. There are inevitable hardships in life, and mindfulness has helped me see I can't control the feelings it brings or the circumstances. However, it hasn't made me feel lighter about any of it. Advice? Well, seeing that you can't control the feelings it brings is certainly a lightness, and so I would question the truth of what you're saying. 
um, sometimes you have, I'm not, not that I think you're lying, but that you might not be quite clear about the, uh, the, the, the reality of it. Not that I presume to tell you what you're experiencing, but you can't say both. Like, if it helps you see you can't control the feelings, well, there's a lightness there. Um, but you have to understand we're complicated. So at times there's going to be a heaviness, but that will be temporary, and it'll be heavy, uh, inordinately heavy, like depressed or uh, un or displeased or dissatisfied or that sort of thing. And that can lead us to rash uh, conclusions, thinking, "Oh, this, I'm, I'm in, I'm in terrible shape." But then it passes, and then some other part of the complex reality that is you arises, where you uh, are are no longer seeking control, because, as you say, you see you can't control the feelings. So, due to not seeking control, there's a lightness there, and you're missing the heaviness of the stress of trying to control, for example. But um, I also don't know how much you practice, how much you have practiced, how diligent you've been, whether you've done any intensive practice. So don't expect miracles unless you're practicing miraculously. If you're practicing day and night, then expect miracles. If you're not, then be a little more patient and understand that you're complicated and that's well, likely going to be a long and winding road. When in meditation, inevitably a thought comes up and I become mindful of it, how do I know when to return to mindfulness of the rising and falling of my abdomen? After you've said thinking. When the thought comes up, you say thinking, and that's it. You return to the abdomen. In mindfulness, I've noticed in my mind how my attachment to negativity and anger lead me to suffering. I've also noticed very sexual desires as well. Is coming to terms with such things bad? I don't quite understand the question. I mean, do you think it could be bad to come to terms? I don't quite know what you mean by come to terms, but it's hard to imagine anyone answering this as a bad thing. No, that would be terrible if you came to terms with, with uh, negativity. So I'm not quite sure. I, I mean, I feel like there's more. There's, you're asking something a little bit different here. Um, attachment to negativity and anger lead me to suffering. Maybe just maybe you're asking whether it's bad to uh, acknowledge that that's an inevitable part of reality that you're going to suffer, or could it be negative to? Uh, to face these things, should you be trying to avoid them or repress them? And the answer to that, of course, is no, that you should be facing them. And I think that's kind of what probably what you're getting at is, uh, is there going to be some problem to um, being objective about these things? Shouldn't I be trying to do something about them? And that's the key and the, the beauty of mindfulness, really, 
is that you're no, you're not trying to. It's not to your benefit to try to fix your your problems. It's uh, in your benefit to to your benefit to try and understand them, to see them clearly, to just be more familiar with them. Because if you're familiar with anger and negativity and attachment and sexual desire, none of them are are appealing once you understand them. Once once you see them clearly, once you're familiar with them. So yeah, no. That that could be described as coming to terms with them, and that is the best thing you could possibly do. I hunted many animals in my childhood, and whenever I do noting, I get very strong flashbacks of those moments because I feel like I am doing this to redeem myself. Any advice on how to approach this? Take it as an experience. You're, you're complicated. So um, the the simplest the simplest aspect of this is going to be the memories and the feelings about them. But the more complicated part is going to be how you um, interpret them in terms of your meditation. Like my meditation is going to fix these. These things are going to get in the way of my meditation. These things, having done in the past, make me a bad person. They make me uh, incapable as a buddhist because i have too much car i mean does any i'm not saying any of this is true but this is the kinds of things that can go through your mind and so there's complicated reactions now the 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 positive side the the good news is that all of these things all of the complexities can be taken as a as objects of mindfulness no matter how complex it gets all you have to focus on is in the present moment just suppose you you think of this as like a knot or a very a very tangled chain of, of with links. All you have to f do is find one single link. Like if you took a chain and you tied it in knots and made a big knot, it would still be made of individual links. And all you have to do is catch one link and break that link, and it it dissolves. Well, I mean, it's not an instant solution, but that's the solution. Keep breaking the chain, and just like a knot that is made a chain that, that is tied up in knots the chain will just fall apart and the knot will just fall apart. And it will be like the knot was never even there because it wasn't real, it was just chain. So all of these things, no matter how complicated it gets, you, you're, you're constantly trying to simplify and simplify and simplify by the mindfulness, just attacking one link in the chain, one moment, whatever that experience is. Don't think of the chain. Don't focus on the chain and, oh, does this end go here? How do I untie this knot? No. Cut the links. That's all you have to do. Which, which in 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 mindfulness would mean focusing on individual experiences. So it can be the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. It can be the reactions of liking, disliking. It can be drowsiness, distraction, doubt. It can be uh, any any of these uh, pleasure or pain or calm. All of these things. Just find them and keep finding them, and that's all you have to focus on. Just ignore everything else. Don't even pay any attention to it. Just note. I mean, not just note it, right? So, what I mean by ignore doesn't mean ignore, ignore the experience, but ignore the stories. Ignore the chain. Don't think of it as a chain. Think. Look at the links. 
This isn't a story about my childhood and so on. This is a thought that arose right here and now, and that thought is a single thought. That's why we say thinking, and then that's it. Cut it off. How does right mindfulness relate to right effort? Well, they're the fifth and sixth, sixth, um, no, sorry, sixth and seventh elements of the Eightfold Noble Path. So they relate by being neighbors. They're both part of the Samadhi group. Um, no, I mean, I think you're asking something different. Uh, how does mindfulness relate to effort might be a better question, but you have to, you have to understand not that not that this is very significant, but important to understand that the Eightfold Noble Path is the moment where you're perfect. Up until that point, you don't have either of these things. So mindfulness is to develop the moment of right mindfulness. Effort is to develop uh, right effort, which isn't really all that helpful. I mean, it's not that important. So I maybe. Maybe I don't have to explain that to you, but um, I mean, it, why it's useful is because it sounds like from the Eightfold Noble Path that you have to uh, go back and forth between each of these, but uh, you really don't. They're just describing what's perfect about that moment, and each each aspect is useful to know about. Sometimes it's just useful to um, help you see when you might be lacking. Like basically it would say that perfect moment has all these things and you can say, oh, well, I'm lacking this one, so I'm not even close to that, to that perfect moment yet. Uh, that's useful. But in terms of practice, you really only have to focus on mindfulness uh, because everything else has, sort of revolves around it. Kind of like when you turn the key in the car, all of the systems in the car start up. You don't have to go around turning on all the various parts of what makes a car run. Uh, even though each part is important, and it's important they're in good working condition, when it comes to actual practice, turning on the key is... And, and the thing about the car of, my, car of, of meditation is um, when you do that, you'll start to see all the parts and or you know, you'll like a car you notice when a flat you have a flat tire or something you'll notice that when you start moving but then the analogy falls apart because you can actually um you know the, the wheel fixes itself by by seeing clearly so like things like right effort you don't have to go about uh actively cultivating it but you'll know that you're being mindful when you have right effort, when you are actually uh, paying attention to experiences, like not just repeating the mantra mindlessly, but you actually say it when you're aware that the foot is moving or the stomach is rising or when you're seeing or pain and so on. That shows you that you have right effort or that you have effort that's leading towards right effort.
Why do you say in other videos that we are useless as beings existing in this human form? Useless. Um, I don't know in what context I've said that. Worthless, I often say. Worthless. Uh, worthless is a good attitude not to assign worth to yourself, not to make anything out to be worth anything. The Buddha said experiences or existence is like dung. It's not worth anything, no matter how, how the smallest amount of it is not worth anything. Excrement. Useless. Um, that's that's a bit harder. It's not really correct to say that we're useless. We are. Uh, we're not useless. I mean, we can be, but um, we can put the we can use the body for meditation, for example. We can use the mind for meditation, of course. So it's important to make the mind useful, put the body to use. Life in samsara could be called useless. It's useless to try and um, achieve worldly success. That's kind of useless. It has no purpose. How do you time the noting process when noting a phenomenon? Let's say lifting of the heel by approximating the occurrence of a phenomenon irrespective of if it has already begun, or the second approach, waiting for it to begin, noticing it, and then making a mental note. In the first approach, there is potential to note a non-occurring phenomenon, and in the second, there could be a potential delay, approximately 100 milliseconds. I'm not really interested in this question. So what I will say, um, which should be an answer, but I don't want to, I don't want to you to think that that this sort of question is. I mean, it's, it's not really. I'm not trying to reprimand. I'm just trying to point out you're overthinking things, far, far overthinking things. It's quite simple. When you when you note when you experience something, keep it simple, and you have to keep it simple in your mind. You'll never get there, but. You know, this is this is nature. We we are overcomplicating things. We're always overcomplicating everything in our lives, and that's really the crux of it. That's why mindfulness is so important. But you really have to simplify. You have to note these uh, thoughts and doubts and wonderings and confusions and curiosities and so on. So when you lift the heel, you say lifting heel. That's all there is to it, and that's all there should be. If you make more of it than that, and you start wondering, am I doing it right? Is this right? Is that right? Is it like this, or is it like that? You, you've already lost the, lost the thread. Keep it simple. When you lift the heel, say lifting heel. That's it. Don't do it before you lift it. Don't do it after you lift it. As soon as you notice that the heel is lifting, start saying lifting heel. Or sorry, heel up. Oh, sorry, we say, yeah, lifting heel, lifting, moving, so on. Whilst training in mindfulness, 
Is it normal to gravitate towards yoga and other modes of developing yourself? Um, so I'm not usually very um, keen on, on questions about normalcy. Mindfulness is about seeing the, the uncertainty of life. So it's wrong to think that things should be normal. That's the wrong attitude. If you're worried that things are abnormal, you should note the worry, or if you're concerned, or so on. But uh, asking whether things are normal is just a sign of the desire for normalcy, or that sort of thing. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's an obvious question, and it's a comfortable question, sort of question to ask. But you have to appreciate. The, uh, the 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 problem with asking whether something is normal. It's hard to ask any other question. What you really want to ask is: Is it wrong? I suppose. Uh, is it wrong of me to gravitate towards yoga? Is it wrong? That's not really what "is it normal" asks. It's, um, what, what what does it matter whether it's? I mean, what 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 does it even mean? What does it matter? Let alone what does it mean? I mean, neither of those. I don't have an answer to either of those. What does it mean or what does it matter? Say something is normal. Question would be whether it's right or wrong, right? That would be a useful question. Is it a part of the training in mindfulness? Does training in mindfulness um, lead to gravitating towards yoga? I mean, I still don't see what the what the importance would be. I mean, the answer is basically no. Mindfulness just leads you to be more mindful. On a, for a pra on a practical level, it might happen for sure. I mean, it seems reasonable to say that it would happen. Someone who practiced more mindfulness might, some people might, to gravitate towards yoga and other modes of developing themselves as well. But I think someone who is uh, serious and and who has practiced some intensive mindfulness might be less inclined to practice such things because they don't see the, the importance of them. So not really all that important, not on the same level of mindfulness. Any time that you spend in yoga, you could just as easily spend in mindfulness. And it's in my mind, it's a sign of some uh, attachment or distraction that someone feels like they need to add yoga in. Some kind of uh, distorted perspective. I mean, it sounds kind of uh, kind of blind for to say it, but I really do think mindfulness is all you need, and uh, I don't expect everyone to agree. But you've got my answer. You really all you need is mindfulness and and this, this sort of the basic things that surround it. But yoga isn't one of those things. Like you need things like kindness, friendliness, uh, ethics, that sort of thing. Simplicity in your lifestyle, right, right livelihood, right, right actions, and right speech, and all these things. But uh, a lot of that also comes just from being mindful. Narrow-minded, it might seem like, and that's fine. I don't expect everyone to agree, but I do believe that. What is the difference between the seven chakras and dimensions, and how can I tap into different dimensions 
from the hips, heart, throat, etc. What I mean is, can you tap into all dimensions from one part of the body, or are the chakras and dimensions the same thing? Okay, I don't know. Um, why? Why are we asking this question? I, I get. I mean, I, I think. I, I think the answer is well. Maybe we can help redirect this person. But I think the only answer, and it's pretty obvious, is you don't have a clue what we do here. Which is okay. I mean, it's understandable. I don't know how you found us, but this has nothing to do with anything. It's not what we do. So. I would recommend you read our booklet. Uh, really the best thing, not that we, it's expected, but the best thing for this session is that you've read our booklet in advance. Uh, it's not going to be nearly as beneficial to you if you come here and haven't read our booklet. Now, maybe this person has read our booklet, but that would be a sign of other issues. Like, why are you asking this question if you know that it has nothing to do with what I teach? can still happen that um, there's this misunderstanding that somehow these things do have something to do with what we teach. Chakras, the word chakra means circle. Now I know what you're referring to, um, but what you're referring to has nothing to do with what we teach and is conceptual. I think the way I'm, I, dis, I translate it there for you as circle is that it's a concept. These are ideas, and there's a whole theory behind these ideas, and that is not our theory. That is the theory of a completely different um, spiritual, but sort of partially spiritual, partially uh, medical, it has to do with physical health as well. But uh, I mean, it's a Hindu uh, school of thought that talks about chakras. I don't know if Tibetan Buddhism also talks about chakras. I don't know, but certainly Hinduism does use the word chakra to describe seven things in the body. Uh, dimensions also not, not, that's not language that we use. Neither of these things is not our language. I mean, we use the word chakra to talk about actual wheels, like wheels of a cart. Like uh, the, the, the wheel follows the ox. If an ox pulls a cart, then the wheel has to follow the ox. And in the same way, if you act or speak with an impure mind, suffering follows. Just in the same way. You can't, you can't avoid it. There's no... Um, there's no escape. It follows inevitably, like the wheel follows the ox. Is any wanting and fun okay? Is it bad to set arbitrary fun goals and enjoy pursuing them, even if I remember to not get attached to them? Does having hobbies go against practice? Um, yeah, so okay is too vague to really give you a good answer. Um, I mean, based on a, a, a very sort of um, middle-of-the-road definition of that term, the answer is yeah, yes, it is okay. It's not not okay. Like, like 
where you say, hey, that's not okay. No. If you were a Buddhist monk, that, that might be true. You might say, hey, Mr. Buddhist monk, that's not okay. Um, but that that really still doesn't apply to wanting, and it doesn't apply to fun of any kind. A monk having fun isn't the kind of thing where anyone, well, where a good person would say, hey, Mr. Monk, that's not okay. Maybe, let's say, a meditator, if you're in the middle of a meditation course and you ha start having fun, I don't think there's any fun that would be okay during a meditation course. So there you might say, Mr. Meditator or Miss Meditator, that's not okay. Um, but asking whether something is bad, you have to understand that it's like asking if uh, electrons are negatively charged. Is there any electron that is not negatively charged? That's just a, a um, I don't know, maybe there are, but I don't think it's possible. It's just a law of nature. So the same goes with wanting. Um, wanting is, is, is never going to be not bad, is always going to be bad, technically, just like electrons are always going to be negative charge, negatively charged. But a few electrons aren't going to give you an electric shock. A lot of electrons might. So bad is relative. You know, bad is, well, bad is a quality. So it's going to be bad. The question is how bad? Well, not very bad. So setting arbitrary fun goals depends. Is that all you do 24 hours, you know, 18 hours a day or 16 hours a day? Then yeah, that could be a serious detriment because it just consumes your day. But if it's just an idle thing once in a while, it's not going to be, it's going to be bad. It still doesn't escape the law of nature. But practically speaking, probably not that impactful in a negative sense. Enjoy it's the it's the enjoying of pursuing them that's bad. It's just depends how much you enjoy and how much you pursue that determines how bad because it's usually not that impactful. It's just a minor thing and not really going to get in the way. I mean it's certainly not a showstopper. Not like killing or stealing or lying or cheating or that sort of thing. Even if I remember not to get attached to them, you can't just remember not to get attached. Enjoying is attaching. There's no escape. Remember, the wheel follows the ox. This is like that. If you like something, you can't magically. Oh, it's okay. I remember not to get attached. This. Sorry, I don't want to sound like I'm mocking. I'm not. It's just kind of funny. I mean, it's. I'm not ridiculing you. I'm just uh, kind of trying to show how. How it's not, how it's kind of funny. It's still kind of not laughing at you, hopefully, laughing with you. That um, when you're enjoying pursuing things, you're, 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 not, you're not in charge. You're, you're not, um, you don't have the, well, it's not enough to just remember to not get attached. You don't have the power to just say, oh, it's okay. I remember to not get attached. That's not how, that's not how the mind works, unfortunately. Does having hobbies go against the practice? Um, 
Well, again, if you're on a meditation course, then engaging in hobbies is going to be improper. But, uh, I mean, technically, does it go against the practice? I mean, technically, yes. Any kind of uh, desire that you engage in, indulge in is going to go against the practice. So, I mean, it isn't technically even having hobbies because, I mean, theoretically, a person on a meditation course might give up some of their hobbies. They had them, but having them was a part of their practice, you know, seeing that indulging in their hobbies was not fulfilling, for example. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's still one question left in the first tier. Do you have time to answer? Yes. Thank you. Can you please suggest any practical ways to accelerate the seeing of non-self in daily life? One thing to accelerate your practice is the hindrance. That's what you should focus on. Your desire and maybe doubt and worry that you're not experiencing it. That's, that's what you have to focus If you did focus on that, you would see that those things as well are non-self, not self. You think it's you who wants to accelerate these things, and that's why you ask the question. And you think it would be you accelerating it, and that you, you think that you have the capacity to accelerate. Do you see how that is contrary to the truth of non-self? It's not actually possible, and so it's causing you suffering, and it will cause you suffering because it's untenable, it's unattainable. And so that's what you should focus on. When I say it, it's hard, you know, because we tell people, the only thing that's important is the three characteristics. And boy, does that cause problems. How can you tell someone that they're going to obsess over those things constantly? And that's the, that's the dilemma here. So we have to go deeper than that. We have to be clear and say, yes, they are the only thing that's important, but absolutely no, they are not what you should focus on. It's incredibly common for people to make the mistake, for meditators to make the mistake of trying to see the three characteristics. That's not how it works. Seeing the three characteristics comes about because of a cause. The cause is what you are focused on, and that cause is mindfulness. You should only be focused on mindfulness. Don't, don't, have, don't care at all. Throw it away. Discard any idea of what might happen because you are mindful. Stop looking. Stop checking. Stop saying, am I there yet? Did I get it? Am I, am I realizing? The Throw it away. That is not valuable. Mindfulness is all you need, all you should concern yourself with. Let go of desire for results, desire for benefits. Do the work. Do the work, and uh, the results will come by themselves. And you just always focus on the results, on the, on, the, on the practice, on the causes. Try and see the value of mindfulness, or try and see mindfulness as valuable in and of itself. Have that perspective. Just mindfulness. Just the best way to live. Just think of it as the best way to live. Don't, don't care about, am I seeing non-self? Am I seeing impermanent? If you do that, you will see impermanence, you will see suffering, you will see non-self. Stop thinking about it. Stop trying.
The only thing you have to try is to be mindful, and that's easy, that's just moments. Thank you, Monte. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Good, Lots of good questions this week. Uh, I hope the answers were beneficial. I know that sometimes it's kind of uh, cr critical, I guess, of questions, but please don't think that there's any hard feelings or anything or that we're kind of disappointed or anything. I mean, asking bad questions can often be a great way to understand to, to gain understanding so that's why they say there's no bad question so even i think that's fair i mean even the bad questions are useful to be asked because well you learn something the only bad of course would be as if you were bad intentioned asking for bad reasons like asking um insincerely so I think there was a lot of sincerity today. I hope the answers were sincerely useful. And I sincerely wish for all of us to benefit from this experience. And may you all be free from suffering. Sadhu. Thank you, Chris, and Edit, for your help. Have a good week, everyone.